Welcome to Things to Think About. I'm Luca, and each episode, I sit down with Scott Commoners, professor of market design at Harvard University, to pick his brain about a specific topic in the world of crypto and Web3. I hope you enjoy, but more importantly, I hope you learn something. Morning, Scott. You ready to talk about some crypto? You know it. Today, I wanted to take a, a little bit of a broader perspective on Web3 and crypto in general. I wanted to talk about the philosophy of Web3 or the paradigm of Web3. In your opinion, what are some of the foundational ideas that define Web3 as a philosophy or an idea? It's a great question. And I should, you know, start by caveating or, or disclaiming that lots of people have different interpretations of this. So this is going to be sort of my take on the philosophy that, that, that we'll talk about and you'll, uh, you know, you'll, you'll help refine and, and, and we'll get your take on it as well. Um, but people have different views on what sort of the, the core underlying concepts are. But the way I think about it, and this is heavily influenced by, by so many of my collaborators um, and, you know, in the communities I'm a part of, but, uh, you know, the specific framing I'm giving is, is very close to the one that uh, Jad Esper and I wrote down in our, you know, Why Build in Web3 article. The idea is that in Web3, you know, the, the creator or, you know, sort of whether the creator is like a, an individual artist or, a, or a, you know, a platform, the creator shares some of the value that they're creating, um, you know, with the early enthusiasts, um, you know, or, or with the participants. They don't have to be the early ones. It's, it's whoever is participating in, in the work or in the platform. And that has a really strong feedback effect. Those are those, are those tokens you're, you're, you're getting, right? Like, you know, that could be the tokens you get for using a platform, uh, you know, for being an early adopter. Those can be the NFTs that you get when you join a community or you, you buy from an artist, uh, you know, or, or musician, like, you know, sort of early on in their career. Um, the idea is that by giving people, you know, some degree of ownership, you know, it's sort of like direct, um, ownership in the platforms or communities that they're excited about, they have a stronger incentive to invest, right? And the, the hope and, and, you know, the, the theory is that when people make those investments, it grows the pie for everybody so that we give up a little bit of value at the start, right? You sort of share more with your users as a platform, say, uh, but those users become so much more engaged that it actually drives up the value of the platform so that everyone, you know, including the platform creator makes more in the long run, makes more again, this is like in value space, right? It's, it could be dollars. It could be like, you know, sort of accolades. It could be sort of high value transactions or, or engagement. Um, whatever it is, it's like, you know, you, you share the pie early uh, through tokens and that grows the pie, you know, and, and then, you know, sort of people's endogenous response, people's response to the fact that the pie has been shared with them is to invest in ways that grow the pie for everybody. One of the things that a lot of people will ask, given that description of kind of the principles of Web3 is, is how this differs from the Web2 world. If we think about something like Facebook or Instagram, for example, I think a lot of people would say that even if it's not through tokens, um, an individual becoming more engaged with Instagram or more engaged with Facebook to some extent does kind of broaden the value pie. 
that all of those different consumers and the company are facing, right? Because on one side, the individual using the platform is bringing in more people onto the platform that they can connect with, more of their friends onto it. Their experience is becoming better from a social perspective. And then on the company side, obviously, more users equals more advertising dollars. How does that specifically change with Web3? Is it purely like a financial tokenization thing where mm. it's just more accessible and, and viewable? Or is there something else to it? No, it's a great question. Um, I think the big distinction here is that in the Web2 model, the, you know, the Business is typically, again, this is this is overgeneralization about Web2, but the business model is typically about, you know, getting users to stay by locking them in, right? The network effect is so strong that they can't leave. And that's a, you know, that's an extractive frame at some level, uh, right? You don't get to internalize the value that you, you, like, you do create value when you add new photos to Instagram or something of the sort, but you don't really get to internalize it because at this point, Instagram is at scale and you're locked in and, and they don't really have any strong incentive to share much of the value that you're creating with you. Um, and it's hard to see, of course, because people post tons of photos on Instagram. But at some level, the at least economic theory would say that because people are not internalizing the value they're creating, they're actually not incentivized to produce as much, you know, sort of value for the platform as, as they could otherwise. And so like, you know, yes, people are very engaged, but the theory at least is that they would be far more engaged if they actually like, you know, could take back some of that value to themselves. Um, and, and moreover, there's a there's a big difference when you're you know in in the maybe it's a, it's a separate part of the web3 structure but but when the user sort of owns you know a lot of what they've contributed or created and can just take it from one platform to another the the bargain between the user and the platform is very different as well and so the platform has to design itself in a way that users actually want to be there it forms like a more virtuous network effect through a combination of providing like, you know, sort of a system or a service or whatever that the user like really wants to be a part of and a community cohesion around all of the users having decided they wanted to be a part of the system together. And that's what the, again, this ownership promotes. And so there's a similar effect going on, right? In both cases, you have users who remain attached to a platform because of a network effect. Um, but note that the source of the network effect is very different and that affects value creation, right? In web two, the network effect is the user is locked in, can't leave either because the platform has their data that they can't extract or more likely because all of the engagement they wanna do is like also attached to the sort of grown network effect of the platform, none of which is accessible outside. And so they sort of have to stay inside this, this walled garden or fortress or whatever. Whereas in web three, the network effect is around community cohesion, right? It's around everyone has coordinated on this platform because they actually like it. And they're doing a bunch of things that grow the value of being on that platform together. And the theory is, and, and the hope is that the Web3 version, right? It sounds more positive and maybe a sort of a, you know, 
I'm I'm a I'm a Web three believer at least in many contexts. Uh, so I'm probably like giving a, a slightly like rosier view of Web three. Um, but the theory is at least that if you have people built around these really positive network effects into a into a platform community, then the long run value of that platform is higher. Maybe we should actually maybe we should talk about it in the context of like a creator economy platform or something where it's maybe even a little more intuitive when there's sort of like two sides participants and stuff like that. Yeah, one hundred percent. I, I think that was pretty clear, but let's walk through that example. So let's say we are in a creator economy platform, um, something that that looks like a DAO as a social token engaged with it. Um, what does that look like? Let's say like a, a conceptual example of someone selling on Etsy versus a platform that they have a staked interest in and they, they actually get rewarded yeah. for being a part of that. What does that look like? How does that differ for them? Nice. So... The difference between so if you're on Etsy, you're uh, you know as a seller, or um, you know you're on YouTube as a as a video creator or something of the sort, you're showing up and you're creating content that is shaped around whatever that platform is presenting, right? Etsy provides stores in some specific format. They boost very specific types of posts. I've certainly had all sorts of weird experiences uh, navigating the Etsy store with what they tend to, to circulate to me. Um, but their incentive is to maximize the likelihood that I transact. Um, and they're going to you know, do that through serving to me like some sequence of, you know, so some se sequence of, of potential creators. Um, the creators have very little control over how that sequencing occurs or like what they're sort of, uh, you know, what the end consumer might see from their, their profile. But more than that, like you're sort of, they're incentivized to build for the algorithm that Etsy is, is running. Um, and they don't internalize, you know, and they're, they're, they're not, for example, incentivized to do things that, um, you know, that sort of, or rather they have very little incentive to grow the total participation in Etsy. Right. If you're an Etsy seller and you can get me to go and buy off your personal website, you 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 make the the full the the, the full thing, or the the full revenue. Um, meanwhile, if we had like a, you know, a DAO Etsy, or even just an Etsy where the creators can sort of take their online store and immediately port it elsewhere, right? Like if you know if if they can sort of serve to consumers in many different places at once. Um, Etsy has much more incentive, or the the DAO Etsy, this this new Web three Etsy, Web Threatsy. I don't know what we would call it. Um, <laughs> it's it's an Etsy with Web a three team. for the E, so it's like <laughs> it's not quite a trademark violation. Um, the uh, that's gonna get stolen. Someone's gonna build it. I am you not a lawyer. It. I do not recommend <laughs> trademark appropriation. Um, the uh, <laughs> Brother, I am not a lawyer. Department is despite be that, you right? Like, I am not a lawyer, so I can't really. I don't have a view on whether the three, the the, the Etsy with a three, is or is not trademark <laughs> appropriation. But for avoidance of doubt, I do not recommend trademark appropriation in general. Um, so, uh, what was? Oh yeah. So, so the Web three Etsy. Um, you know, first of all, the creators can shape the platform and and sort of build towards a platform that better serves their needs and sort of like enable, you know, sort of like reflects the products they want to sell rather than having to shape their products around the platform. Um, but the other thing is the platform has an incentive to, uh, you know, has an incentive to 
shape itself around them in the first place, right? Even if it's not a DAO, even if they don't have like voting and governance, they still have the ability to leave or to like, you know, flexibly operate stores on many other platforms at once. Um, and with the Web3 YouTube equivalent, I, don't, I guess that's YouTube uh, with a three at the end uh, mm -hmm. to continue the, the same joke. And, and again, like, you know, please know um, the, uh, the Web3 YouTube, um, you know, creators can take their content with them. This changes their bargain with the platform tremendously, right? They can probably, you know, earn, again, even if they didn't own YouTube tokens, um, they could probably negotiate much better um, royalty rates or, 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 you know, sort of revenue shares from the advertising uh, simply because they, it's, it's sort of easy for them to, to port to some other platform. But also, again, right, like, you own all of your digital assets, you're building more for yourself than for any specific platform. And so you construct the, the sort of the instructional videos or, or whatever it is you want to create. And then, you know, you know, platforms build around that, right? Like, you know, if, if you've invented like a new category of online video or something, you own those things in your crypto wallet and like a new video platform can just point to your uh, crypto wallet, which means that emergent categories, you know, people are incentivized to discover these emergent categories and try and like find these new opportunities rather than constantly sort of building for the format that the current dominating platform that sort of you know, is built around. Um, and again, right, like the other thing is just, you have much more incentive to, you know, to invest your time and effort in the thing. And again, it's, it's, it's so funny. It's like a dog in the nighttime doesn't bark, right? Like people spend tons and tons of time making YouTube videos. It's not like they don't do that, right? Um, it's kind of even hard to imagine what it would be like to have people spend even more time making YouTube videos, certainly judging <laughs> by the, uh, the, the number of time I've, the amount of time I've spent watching them. Um, but, but nevertheless, ownership changes your relationship with the platform in a very significant way. And like ownership of your own digital assets means the platform has to like bargain more, more with you, right? Like you have market more market power than you would otherwise. And ownership of a share of the platform means that you benefit from overall improvements and you're incentivized to try and do that. And this, by the way, this doesn't have to happen on a blockchain, I should say, right? Like, Either sharing ownership of a platform can happen in a Web2 environment too. It's just a lot of Web2 platforms do not do this. But like, there's nothing to stop uh, any of these platforms from, from giving a, a partial ownership share to their creators. Um, and, and indeed, some of them do, um, or at least are trying to. I, I wrote a couple of years ago about Airbnb with their host endowment. Do you know about this? Not fully, no. So when Airbnb had their, um, you know, when, when they when they became a publicly traded company, they set aside an endowment of shares for their hosts, hmm. and that's a really interesting model, right? Like, you know, they, they had no specific, you know, this was not a like requirement, or it wasn't like you know, sort of some investor thought they should, you know, well, maybe some investor thought they should do it, but it wasn't like like some condition of the IPO or something required doing this. But what they did is they created, um, you know, they took a portion of the shares and they put them in an endowment. And the idea is that the endowment will fund a variety of different initiatives for hosts. Um, and some examples of things that, that you know, sort of they, they had planned, you know, could be like hosts putting something on the product roadmap, right? If there's some tool a host really want, then they can like, you know, 
essentially allocate money to have engineering do it. Um, But also like, you know, they might buy education credits for hosts, families, they might like, you know, insure, you know, provide insurance in situations like the start of the, you know, 2020, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, you know, as the pandemic like really became global, there was this massive hit to Airbnb's business. And a lot of hosts are, you know, private small business owners, right? They own, you know, maybe a few, you know, a, a few rooms or a small building or something. And, you know, Airbnb did basically bail them out. There was no formal insurance program in place, but after like, you know, seeing how much the, uh, you know, how, how in- immediately depressed all of the, the rentals were, Airbnb ended up like essentially ex post and sure or after the fact insuring the hosts. Uh, the idea is one thing that this endowment could do is, is provide that sort of insurance. And you ask like, why, like, what's the, it sort of sounds strange. Like why, why should the platform allocate some of its resources to, you know, providing these, these various services for the hosts? And the answer is, of course, that hosts are small business owners. And in order to get them to invest in those businesses, you have to give them assurance that if there's a downturn, they're going to be insured. And that like this can be a business that they could use to support their family and like, you know, get their kids education and so forth. And so, you know, it's it's like a form of ownership, right? It's as if you'd given all the host tokens and said you can vote on the engineering roadmap, and this is, you know, this token will be like, you know, burned for insurance in the event of a downturn, right? Like, like that's a that's a tokenized business model, not on a blockchain. But the key is that it's this sharing of, of some fraction of the, the value of the business as a way of incentivizing people to invest and, and, and freeing them to invest, right? It's not just like, you know, it's not just like sort of a, a carrot, but it's also like enabling an opportunity. I, yeah, I think that is incredibly cool. I haven't heard about the Airbnb one in particular, but a, another kind of similar example of trying to align incentives um, between equity holders and the kind of consumers and and other like third party small businesses, if you will, that that line up in employees um, to make a company successful as Starbucks. Um, yeah. I don't know if this is still true, but Starbucks, um, at least historically, used to offer uh, stock to every mm-hmm. single one of their employees, including the frontline staff, even like the part time hourly wagers yeah. that were were taking your order. And the idea with it was to give people a, a stake in the company, an equity stake totally. in the company that incentivize them to act in the interest of it. Um, and I think like what Airbnb is doing in that example is is an extension of that. It's totally doing it for what up until that point is more or less a, a gig portion of their, their business mm-hmm. model, their value chain. Um, that's incredibly fascinating. I think coming out of, of that part of the discussion, it seems like Web2 um, with some notable exceptions, mm-hmm. tends to treat like the content creators or gig workers or whatever it is that's an input into that that aggregation system as almost an asset rather than like an individual or a collaborator towards the end of optimizing the profit of the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of has like a, a secondary or kind of like hidden coercive effect on the content that ends up on the platform, right? So YouTube's algorithm um, pushes certain content, that content gets monetized, it generates yep. revenue. And because there are people that need to make a living off of it, um, more of that content is made. And yep. so it's, it's almost curatorial through their market making system. Mm-hmm. Um, even if that's an unintended consequence. Totally. 
when I think about Web3, um, obviously you have more of an ability to port your content as you were talking about, more of an ability to go find a platform that works for you and, and really invest time into that platform because you also benefit from its growth. Yep. Does this end up in a world where everything is super fragmented because everyone is going and finding kind of the micro community or micro platform that works best for their specific content? And if so, does that lead us into a world that's just kind of like aggregation of aggregation of aggregation of all these <laughs> Right. Will the, will the real value be in like, you know, making sense <laughs> of all of these various yes. like extremely yeah, exactly. platforms with five people on them? Um, you know, it's funny you ask that like a major trend in marketplace businesses as of maybe five years ago was, you know, sort of the the verticalization along, along thinner and thinner verticals. So like there were, you know, online marketplace or really they were, they're mostly phone apps. They were like, you know, delivery phone, you know, <laughs> delivery food phone apps for specific categories yep. of delivery food, like, you know, slice craft, for pizza. pizza. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Pizza. <laughs> um, and like, at some point you're like, wait a minute, hang on. Like, I thought we solved the problem of getting all the restaurants on a single platform. Like, why would you ever want to disaggregate these things? But of course, if you are a real diehard pizza fan, having the pizza specific platform is actually going to provide you the services you need. More detail relative to Uber Eats, you know, probably more easier to input topping varieties. I don't know. I don't actually have this. I'm, I'm, I'm not <laughs> as into pizza as I probably should be. Uh, <laughs> it's not anymore. There was there was a period where I would eat like entire pizzas and things, but uh, those those all night problem set sessions are, are long gone. Hmm? You're, you're still there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing is there isn't, as I mentioned, there is a network effect um, in web three. And there are also still, um, there are also still other sources of that might drive people onto sort of individual platforms, right? Like, you know, the availability of lots of integrations or specific forms of user know-how, like you have a really good interface or something of the sort. Um, you know, it's not a coincidence, right? Why does everyone use, not everyone, why do so many of the people we know use MetaMask, right? This is not a pure coincidence. Um, and so one can still have dominant platforms in those environments, but note that they tend to come from things that kind of sound like features, right? They come from having a lot of available integrations. They come from having a better user interface or like a better gas fee prediction algorithm or something. Um, or they come from what uh, Jad and I call community cohesion, which is the idea that like the group of users has coalesced around excitement about this specific platform. Um, and so, it's not the case. And then meanwhile, exactly as you say, you can have these fragmented like micro platforms for specific use cases, right? There are individual NFT collections that have their own marketplaces. And that's kind of great, right? Can you imagine if, you know, that's, that's, that's like innovation straight on a tech standard. Can you imagine the approximate analog? It's sort of, I guess, if every Etsy seller could have like a, a Shopify like platform for themselves. Um, and indeed, right. It's, it's essentially, you know, these collections manage their own individual sales and transactions because all the people who want to engage in those transactions can know about it and, and go together. 
And so indeed, if I were an Etsy artist who was sufficiently po powerful or, or popular that everyone was showing up and I had these recurring customers who wanted to come back and forth, then I could in fact run my own Shopify page and it would be fine and it would be fragmented. And that's, you know, Vinnie Hager has his own web store on his, on his website. And so you can, and, and the reason this works or the, the reason this works for him is because the people who are looking for Vinnie Hager limited edition items, you know, are looking hard enough that they will go to his website and find them. And there's a centralized information source that you can use to know that they're there, which is his discord. And so, uh, you know, shout outs to Vinny, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I love, you know, I, I'm, I'm very biased. I love his work and we did a puzzle collab. So, you know, did, disclosure, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan. Um, this was not a paid placement. I just randomly referenced Vinny Hager. Um, the, uh, so, um, what I was saying, so like these, these verticalized platforms can be good, um, but they're only going to be able to succeed when there's a community of people who want to use them. And that's so that community cohesion comes back. It's like, you know, when will there be a platform just for, you know, pizza NFTs or something? It's when enough people want to buy and sell the pizza NFTs that it makes sense for them to like go and find it on their own, on its platform of its own, as opposed to going to one of the market leaders. It sounds like um independent of kind of these fragmented platforms when we talk about something like metamask um that kind of is an industry leader controls a large amount of the market share that differentiation from competitors is moving away from like go to market and some of kind of the games that you can play in web 2 and, and modern kind of economics towards yeah. like the hard work of actually developing new and more competitive features. And I think That's that is incredibly interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's going to do so much for like consumer value and, and what they're actually going to do. We I hope. Think the, we <laughs> hope. I should we say, hope. the yeah, jury is not yet crossed. out, but, but at least in theory, it could do this. And, and that's very exciting to me. Sorry, go ahead. Theoretically. Yes, with the interoperability of, of being able to move data over, and it, it's just a fascinating little puzzle. But I think one of the ideas that you had talked about that I hadn't really thought about before that's really, really interesting is this idea of community cohesion or community excitement and that kind of driving the success of a platform. Once you kind of have the buying of all these individuals, all these people that actually are committed to a mission, um, their excitement is in and of itself because they're executing on it and, and bought into the platform itself. Yeah. is enough to drive its success and to yeah. onboard more people and bring more people to it. And not only is that possible, but it's it's enabled and empowered because of this decentralized kind of Web3 technology where that yeah. wouldn't exist in Web2. And it's I think incentivized. that's beyond fascinating. Yeah, right. and it's incentivized. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, incredibly interesting. So as you were saying, um, there are incredible incentives both for like the actual businesses, the community members. Um, there's an ability to port this into Web2. You can do it with Airbnb, Starbucks to an extent, uh, to an extent, any company that has stock options. Totally. Um, why have we not seen more Web2 companies embrace this ideology, embrace this philosophy, bring their stakeholders into the discussion more? Are we? Is that what ESG is? Like, how does that, why isn't it there? Why doesn't That's it great. exist? really great question. Um, I think the real issue is that this, the path of really integrating your stakeholders, right? The, the Web3 aspiration is very hard 
in the sense that it requires, it virtually requires giving up value in the short run in order to grow value in the long run. And I think especially sort of a lot of the classic web two platforms that have faced so much growth pressure, you know, both from, from inside and outside, right? Like, you know, both you, you want your platform to grow because you're trying to create a network effect that is strong enough that, that it can't be breached by some competitor. Um, but also, uh, you know, these platforms, because they have network effects, often grow sort of like, you know, um, you know they, they snowball very quickly, right? When, when successful, the thing might grow outside of your control. Uh, there's a lot of incentive to make the decisions that optimize in the short run. Um, you know, whether it's about maximizing revenue or, or doing things that are sort of unsustainable but drive engagement. Um, and those short-run incentives are often in conflict with this idea of giving people value to incentivize them to make long-run investments in growing the platform uh, or growing the value the platform can provide. Um, you know, for example, if you think about a rideshare platform, on the one hand, this sort of tokenized model could work for, there's, there's, a, there's a footnote here, which is we don't actually know it's not totally clear whether rideshare is like a sustainable business um, to begin with. Like it's possible that like the, the market clearing price is actually negative or something, but like, let's, let's imagine that it's, it's a sustainable market, which it with reasonably high probability I think is, um, you know, it's not the, it's not that tokenizing rideshare wouldn't actually potentially improve the value of the product dramatically. Right? Like let's imagine, I was, you know, like I was running a rideshare company where all the drivers got a, a share of the, you know, of the, of the revenue or something, you know, so like a, you know, like a, you know, an index on the, the success of the company, whether it's equity or, or a token or something. Um, and now because they know that they have that, they can, or, or even just like, you know, it provides insurance, right? It like insures them against like rideshare downturns. Maybe now they can go and buy a fancier car. Right. And like, or, you know, lease a fancier car and eventually buy one or something. Right. Now, over time, the supply side product gets much better. Right. People get fancier cars. They like, you know, invest in really good playlists. You know, it sounds silly, but that can take hours and like could cost money if you're like buying a subscription to some music service. Um, and that grows the value of the supply side. It also probably in the long term grows supply, like sort of like there's more high quality supply available, which means people mm -hmm. like the demand side on the margin now wants to use the service more, and so that actually mm -hmm. can you can make the thing more valuable in the end. And indeed, in the long run, you can probably charge more for a higher quality product, right? If you manage to raise the experience quality of rideshare by making it faster and like higher quality vehicles with like more experienced drivers, all of these things mean in the end the price is higher too. And so everybody sort of stands to make more money. But note that those adjustments can take like years to set in. And meanwhile, you have, you know, in, in, at least in the United States, you know, two duopolistic platforms competing on price. And every incentive they have is to lower prices to the rider as much as they can in order to, you know, win the, win the price competition. But okay, yeah. in that state of affairs, then if the rider is paying much less and the platform still has to make enough to keep the, you know, sort of keep the engineers writing code, um, you know, that means that they really are strongly incentivized to take advantage of the fact that there are tons of people who want to drive and like, you know, lower the supply side price again, clearing the market, right? It's not that there aren't drivers willing to drive at low prices, but 
you don't get into the sort of tier of, of driver security that would enable them on, you know, at, you know, writ large to make these sorts of investments. And so that's the sort of tension in web three. So, so sort of the, you were probably about to ask like, so how does web three escape this? And the answer <laughs> is you tie your hands, right? You sort of commit to a, upfront to a model that has this shared ownership. Um, and as a result, um, you sort of, and meanwhile, and because the competitive landscape, it's so easy for new competitors to appear in many of these industries, like you sort of have no choice, but to try and do the hard thing. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I think it speaks volumes to like the economic system we currently exist in. The way I view it is that, um, a lot of those trade-offs that you're describing between building for the long-term versus like maximizing for the short-term are really trade-offs created by the capital allocation system that we have. Um, a lot of these companies need money, they need yep. to get money from the capital markets, and they have to hit certain benchmarks, certain standards to be able to get that money, unless they have some sort of connection to convince someone to give them the money, regardless of the financials, right? Which like is, is a little bit of a, a Hail Mary at this point in time. <laughs> um, one area where I see that not being the case in, in kind of the traditional economy um, is in streetwear and clothing brands. A lot of those brands can't get access to capital early on while scaling. Um, it, it's just not there. No one wants to invest in them as as like seed stage companies. It's not yep. a thing. Um, and weirdly enough, those are the companies that do lean on their stakeholders a lot totally. and bring them into the, the value chain, bring them into uh, the discussion, bring them into the decision-making to some extent. Yep, 100%. Um, and then at the same time, we see a lot of the comparison between streetwear and NFTs and kind of this entire idea of cultural assets. Totally. Is that why NFTs and, and art and cultural assets have kind of come first, putting aside DeFi and, mm -hmm. and kind of finance? Is that why they're kind of coming first within this new wave of Web3 development? Is it because they naturally are kind of already acclimated to this new style of business? Oh, that's a great question. I actually think it's funny. I haven't thought about it that way before, but I think you're right. A big part of why these like streetwear and other sort of, um, you know, types of pre-existing like highly engaged customer communities are um, are sort of finding that sort of like getting like funneled into NFT world so quickly is, is both because it, the NFTs support a behavior that has already existed. Think about, you know, the, uh, the atom bomb squad, uh, which is the, the hundreds is NFT project, uh, shout outs also to Bobby hundreds, huge fan as well. Uh, disclosure, I do own Absolute two goal. atom bomb squad NFTs. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, by the way, also, you know, anybody listening to the, this um, recording, uh, if you haven't read Bobby Hundreds' This Is Not a T-Shirt, like buy a copy right now. This book is freaking amazing. Um, the, uh, again, this is not a paid placement. I'm just a huge fan of that book. Um, <laughs> the, uh, we got to start way, down, these We things. don't do paid placements. Uh, so <laughs> I was gonna if, say. if I ever forget to say this, like, you know, specific reference I just made is not a paid placement. It's still not a paid placement. Um, the, uh, but anyhow, so, um, I'm just very enthusiastic about some of my, like, you know, favorite people in the NFT space. <laughs> anyhow, so, uh, the hundreds 
you know, the Atom Bomb Squad project was really sort of a way of taking what was already an extremely close knit community and that, that had, you know, and whose connection with each other was refracted very much through Bobby hundreds and, and Ben hundreds and, and the media brand they had built around their, their streetwear empire and giving this community a way to sort of like engage with itself that was more decentralized and like sort of like allowed people to connect from all over who might not have otherwise gotten to know each other. And so in that sense, right, having token gated chat rooms and things like this was sort of a natural extension of the way the hundreds is fan base was already engaging. Um, and I think so one reason is it, it, it attaches very nicely to the behaviors that are already in place. The other thing is that the creators of these cultural products really understand how they work and are like good at thinking about brand as community, uh, which again, you know, sort of like Bobby's book is like really about this. It's like, how does a brand become a community? And like, what does the fact that your brand is a community mean for how you should understand, you know, sort of your, your business? Um, and, and, you know, and then, and they've driven a lot of innovation in NFTs too, right? Um, you know, one of my favorite examples, again, again, from this Adam Bomb Squad project, which is one day apropos of sort of nothing specific, uh, the Atom Bomb Squad NFT like project announced that holders of specific assets would start getting store credit royalties when their assets were used in collections, which is a little wacky, right? Unlike, you know, the like many NFT projects, you know, the Atom Bomb Squad NFT owners did not own their their actual assets. They own the NFT, um, mm -hmm. but the assets are still like, you know, sort of part of the hundreds historical library of Atom Bomb Squad characters. Or Adam yeah, Bomb the, characters, rather. Um, for clarification, so, like the the actual IP of the right. images. Yes, sorry, the important. Yeah, the IP of the images all. the user yeah. does not own. So it's yeah. not like I have a subduck and like license my subduck for being you know to and have the right to license my subduck to be used in some third party derivative or business or something. No, like mm -hmm. the Adam Bomb NFTs on the Adam Bomb Squad. Or sorry, the Adam Bomb images. It's confusing for me to even say it <laughs> on the Adam Bomb Squad NFTs are really like still the property of the hundreds. Um, and so it, you know, just because the hundreds used them in some of their collections sort of doesn't, you know, there's no particular reason you should receive royalties on this, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. the hundreds is using their own brand IP in their own collection. They have no yeah. requirement to share it with their community. In, in anyway. their context, you may as well have bought a t-shirt with that right. logo on it. Exactly. Yes. You bought a t-shirt with yeah. that logo, which just happens to be a unique one-of-one t-shirt that has this logo and a unique background. Yeah. Um, but they chose, when they then went and sold t-shirts with these logos on them, like they chose to then pay royalties to the, uh, you know, the holders of the associated NFTs. And that was an incredible move, right? They were essentially, you know, sort of partially decentralizing their brand. And like saying to the community, like, like, look, you really are the brand, right? This isn't us talking to you. This is all of us talking to each other. Um, it was incredibly powerful, right? Like a bunch of people, like, you know, went out and like got the hundreds, you know, like, you know, Adam Bomb and you know, like t tattoos of their like, you know, Adam Bomb NFTs and things like, you know, it was like, and, and you can't really, you can't pay for advertising that good. Right. Like the cost, right. On the one hand, like they're 
giving up some of the revenue they made from, you know, from, uh, you know, sort of selling shirts and, uh, you know, hoodies and stuff. On the other hand, the cost is low relative to the amount that it sort of, you know, factors back into community engagement and excitement about the brand. And remember, right, those holders are some of your most enthusiastic customers as well, right? And so, you know, when you make them more excited, first they suck more of their friends in, they like, you know, post more on the internet, they create a bunch of material that builds the brand and they probably buy more stuff themselves too because they're even more excited. And so it's, it's, again, it's like you're, by sharing ownership in a way, you're incentivizing people to drive the success of the brand because they become part of it too. Yeah, the way um, I would discuss it in, in kind of like traditional finance or, or big corporate is you're reaching your top customers that already have the highest lifetime value um, and the lowest churn and you're extending that lifetime value Bingo. even further out. Um, and on top of that, you're making them even more of an evangelist for that brand than they already would have been. It, it's just like a mind boggling value equation. Like yep. you were saying, compared to the royalty you have to pay them. And even if they hadn't paid that royalty, they'd already kind of engaged that community in that way and brought them together. Exactly. It's, it's like a beyond fascinating way to go about building community. I can only second your recommendation to pick up uh, the Bobby Hundreds book. Uh, this is not a t-shirt um, as well as read all of his blog posts because the blog posts are, are incredible. Um, there are so many fascinating ones on there, including some that are specific about Web3 and, and his take on it. So highly recommend those as well. Also not a paid promo in case we still have to <laughs> kind of point that out. Um, <laughs> we're running super, super long here. So I want to cycle all the way back to our initial question. Um, after this conversation, if you had to like distill the philosophy of Web3 into like three or four points, what would they be? I mean, if I were to say it in one sentence, it's ownership is powerful. Um, but let me maybe, pretty efficient way, right? Exactly. <laughs> let me let me let me double click on on a couple of the different ways in which ownership is powerful. Right. One of them is ownership uh, incentivizes people to to produce, you know, to invest, to create, because they're, you know, sort of, they get to internalize some of the value that they're creating by doing so, right? And so the first piece of it is, you know, by sharing ownership, you really incentivize people to invest in building in a way that is sort of aligned with what you're trying to do with your platform or your brand or whatever. Uh, two is ownership is powerful because it changes the competitive dynamics. Right. When I own my data or my digital assets and can take them freely from one platform to another, my bargain relative to the platform has changed very significantly. Um, and then, you know, sort of the third is that through these dynamics, the hope is that Web3 creates innovation that grows the value of the pie for everybody. Right. It sort of makes you know, in, in the short run, you give up some value in exchange for much, much more value in the long run. And, you know, that's hard, right? It's not easy. Like you, you don't necessarily, um, you know, you don't necessarily want to, uh, rather in the moment, you don't necessarily want to take the, the long run view. Like there's a lot of pressure to take the short run view. Um, but, for maximum value creation, it's the long run view that's important. 
And so in some sense, Web3 is also about sort of tying your hands into this bargain where you're, you're betting up front that the, you know, sort of the long run view is the one that you really want. Incredible little synthesis. I love this rhetoric around like tying your hands um, because I think that's like what corporations that make decisions based on real mission statements and real values end up doing, right? Like even if you think about um, some of the more progressive companies that exist today, they tie their hands with their values and their mission statements and say, yep. even if it's a profit thing, we're not moving past it. This is a world where not only can you do that, you also can actually enforce it like through contracts, through code, through like an actual system. Um, and that kind of deflects the whole investor pressure of like, well, you don't really have to do it. It's um, yep. fascinating world. Um, any final thoughts on this topic, philosophy of Web3, any final notes, any questions that are still outstanding for you that you're going to be looking into over the next couple of years? Things you're oh, keeping gosh, I mean on? If you want to, be, <laughs> I know. If you want Wide to enumerate question. all the questions, I'm hope I already know. I'm hoping to think about over the next you know several years. That's going to take an entire episode. Um, but let me let me just uh, let me close by pointing out something we haven't really said, uh, but sort of as a corollary of everything so far, which is there's a sense in which this can also be much more fun, right? Building with your community rather than extracting from them is also just like a more pleasant mode to be in and it's harder again it's like harder on so many dimensions right this is not like an easy path and, and i think a, yeah. a common misconception is that you know sort of just doing things with crypto tokens makes it all like perfect right like no you have to like set up your incentive design super carefully right like there's all of these like really complex challenges that going this route introduce but at least for me and for many of the entrepreneurs I know who are building in it, it's also just like tremendously more fun and rewarding on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, you know, that's another reason I'm really excited about it. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your thoughts on this, this crazy little Web3 world that we engage with. Um, I always learn a ton when we talk. So yeah, thank you too. so much. Thank you. I hope that conversation sparked some new ideas for you. It certainly did for me. If you'd like to connect with Scott, you can find them on Twitter at scommoners. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can also find me on Twitter at itslucawm. If you want to hear about a specific area of interest, send us a message on Twitter or Discord. We would love to hear your perspective. As always, stay thingy, do good things, and we'll see you next week.